listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and leader of the firm's inbound tax practice. We're glad to have you join us. Enjoy the program. A few years ago, at the tail end of 2017, and just in time for the holidays, taxpayers got the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, referred to more casually as the TCJA or simply U.S. tax reform. So now we've got elections just around the bend, and in the run-up, we're hearing quite a bit about tax, particularly from the Democrats, and how they may rework elements of tax reform just as we're getting used to it. So in this episode, we'll be unpacking pieces of the Biden tax plan, specifically those pieces that would most affect cross-border enterprises. With me today are Courtney Wallace, my co-host and international tax principal from our Detroit office, and John Gimigliano, principal in our Washington National Tax Practice and head of our legislative team. So John, what's the word from Team Joe? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the Biden campaign is very serious about reforming the tax system. There are a couple big tent poles on the business side of the ledger that Biden has talked about that I think this audience would obviously be tracking. One of, of course, the big one is the increase in the corporate rate from 21 to 28 percent. Second one is this minimum tax on corporations based upon book income, and it's based on global book income. So that's really an interesting modification to the old corporate AMT as we knew it. Then there's the increase on the tax on foreign earnings. A lot of people have referred to it as doubling the guilty. And then the last piece was this anti-round tripping penalty that Biden is talking about, where we would impose this penalty on companies that take activities outside the U.S. and then sell back into the U.S. market. So those are really sort of the big tent poles, I think, on the business side. So wait a minute. We have U.S. manufacturers that are, in fact, producing overseas. Mexico is one of the big places of production. China is one of the big places of production. And and as we know, they're in a little bit different place, at least in, in terms of like U.S. trade wars and our relationships with those two countries. That's production of goods that comes back into the United States, a significant percentage of that. Is that what we're talking about? Well, like all things with the Biden plan, we don't exactly know because we've really got just sort of snippets. But we've seen this proposal before. We saw it back in the 2014 tax reform proposal from the Ways and Means Committee where they had an anti-round tripping thing. And that really ran into a buzzsaw of opposition from big swaths of the business community. And I think it's a definitional thing, Kim, because we're talking about, well, what exactly does it mean? Who is a round tripper? If I am a U.S. company and I acquire a foreign-based company who was always selling into the U.S., am I suddenly now a round tripper because I own a foreign entity that sells into the U.S.? So it's not that easily defined, and I think it's going to be one of the real challenges, I think, to flesh out when the drafting time comes. And I could see certainly in our base where we've got a ton of manufacturers, this is one area that they're particularly concerned about. I think that's been some of the noise that we've been hearing from our clients here. Mexican tax reform, there are elements of it that put a little bit of stress on the maquiladora structures, on the maquiladora and sales structures that are very, very common in the U.S. manufacturing sector. I think pressure from both sides of the border could be terrible. (laughs) Absolutely. And very difficult to move, right? Uh, A lot of those production lines and otherwise aren't things that are going to be easily movable for the manufacturing entity. So lots of things to consider there, I would think. We have a lot of folks, John, thinking about FIDI and what's really going to happen with it. I know there's been a lot of questions on the international side on whether it's going to be sustainable. Any thoughts really on the domestic front on whether we're going to be able to see that one survive or what the future of FIDI holds for us? 
Such a good question, and it, it really is an important one because you, you notice when I sort of explained the contours of the Biden tax plan, <laughs> I did not mention FDII or FIDI because he doesn't mention it either. The whole reason FIDI was there to begin with was because we created guilty at this lower rate, right, that if we didn't have something to offset the incentive to move out of the headline rate of 21% and into the guilty regime, we would have a base erosion problem. And then the numbers just frankly didn't work in terms of the way they were drafting it. So FIDI was always there as a counterbalance, the flip side of the guilty coin. And so I think we have to think about what Biden would do with it in the context of what he's doing on his own min tax proposal and where he increases it substantially. Does FDII or FIDI still fit in that world? I would argue it does, but as the minimum tax rate creeps up and approaches the corporate tax rate, one could argue it perhaps is less important than it previously was to the overall system in this anti-base erosion. I can imagine if FIDI stuck around, there being more of maybe a U.S. manufacturing or U.S. content requirement to it, kind of like the IC disc rules. Some aspects of the current FIDI rules could be modified to come a little bit more into line with the anti-round-tripping thoughts on kind of the other side of the plan. As you're saying, can we deal with this potential round-tripping thing within FIDI? And I'm just reminded of old Section 199, you know, where mm-hmm. we have to figure out what domestic production was and what a complex question that was. Uh, you know, and I think this is part of what we were trying to get out from that, get away from that. The only thing I would say is if the min tax rate goes up from 10 and a half to 21, mm-hmm. we have to, I think the policy is we have to increase the, the rate you get on your FIDI benefit as well to match that. Because remember, this is our bulwark, our, you know, our defense right. against the WTO jumping in and saying FDII is an export subsidy. Our defense all along is saying, no, it's not. It's just an anti-base erosion measure. So we have to sort of maintain that rough parity with the min tax rate to make that argument to the WTO should that become a challenge. You right. have to decouple the two in order to somehow maintain some of that argument, right? You'd, you'd have to say, no, it's different, but it's set up to do the same thing. <laughs> I will make one more comment with respect to the, co- the content requirement, and then I promise you I'll leave it alone. But we have made in America content requirements, marking requirements for customs purposes. We've got federal procurement benefit, the Buy American Act stuff, and all of that is U.S. content requirement. So We could, if we really wanted to, just kind of piggyback on things that already exist. One of the things that we haven't heard about is BEAT. And, and of course, that was one of the huge features of tax reform. Well, they haven't said anything. Right, which is is kind of odd because, as you said, it's a really important component of the, you know the, supporting the architecture of the TCJA, the international architecture of the TCJA. And so, what should we read into silence? Does that mean they don't like it or they do like it? Look, we don't want to read too much, but my guess is they are at least expecting to maintain it in some way. But it doesn't mean it wouldn't be subject to changes, right? You know, changes to either sort of trim the sales of the tax system to to comport with some of the other things that Biden is doing, or maybe to try and lessen some of the, the harm of the beat that we've heard about from a lot of people, you know, that the beat unfairly hits this or that, that they might take a look at that. Do you still need a beat if you have a minimum amount of your global income taxed in the United States? So the question you're asking is a really good one I hadn't thought of, which is now that we have this minimum tax, a separate minimum tax, if we think of the beat as a min tax that is on global book income, does that really serve the purpose of what the beat was designed to do from the beginning? And 
I don't know the answer to that, but it's a really good question. I think somebody would have to do the math and say, does it kind of get at the same thing? And if so, do we really still need beef? With regard to some of our manufacturers, certainly we have a bunch where we sit that have engineering services and the like. Really good behavior from a policy perspective, have IEP in the U.S., but are paying for some foreign engineering services that are getting tripped up by these rules as well, right, on the beef side. So it'd be interesting to see if that becomes part of the potential changes there. Manufacturing holds a special place in the heart of all members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. It's somehow this magic, we've got to protect manufacturing. And you hear Trump say it, you hear Biden say it, Biden's got a special tax credit for manufacturing communities and stuff. So do you really think he would go and undo that? I don't. I think one of the other facets of BEAT that I think came as a big surprise to taxpayers when they woke up that one morning in December and realized that their credits Credits, including things like the Watsi credit, were being pulled into the BEAT calculation and not for the good. The BEAT represents a clawback on those credits. So one would hope that if and to the extent that anything that Congress does to help employee retention, if it happens to be in the form of credits, that they remember that there's this clawback. So the value to an employer may not stick as they originally envisioned. I think they're aware of that issue, and that's exactly right. And look, look, we shouldn't forget the beat really functions as an alternative minimum tax, right, with preference items and all that sort of thing. And we can Mm -hmm. think of that just like that. But there is an awareness of these credits, whether Watsi or wind and solar, these things that have gotten pulled out, uh, you lose the benefit of because of the beat. So, John, as we think from a global perspective, you know, what kind of changes are you anticipating maybe OECD or otherwise that also might jump in and kind of impact what we're thinking about? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because it's easy to lose sight of that. We should just remember that the kind of changes they're talking about are so substantial, right, whether it's pillar one or pillar two, that you very well could or maybe even will likely require a legislative change if they agree to something at the OECD. And that brings it back through Congress. It's not just something that the an administration, a Trump or a Biden administration could agree to and be done with. So the one thing I can tell you working with lawmakers is there's no way that you're going to get lawmakers to cut and paste some sort of you know, language, legislative language <laughs> out of the, what was agreed to in Paris into a bill and just vote on it. The U.S. will write its own rules and it may conform or comport with the spirit of an agreement at the OECD, but it's not going to be identical. And I guess the first thing I think of is, well, what if it's different enough that somebody comes back and says, whoa, whoa, whoa that's not what we agreed to. That's only sort of, you know, in the same direction, but that's not close enough. Will there still be retaliation against the U.S.? And then the flip side is, what if we don't get a deal at the OECD? Well, you tell me, but I thought that that means that then these you know, countries are going to feel free to impose their unilateral DSTs that would probably fall disproportionately on U.S. companies. And I think in that scenario, whether you've got a President Trump or a President Biden, there is probably a legislative tax response to that. So I think one way or the other, the OECD is going to force something more from tax law changes out of the U.S. Yeah, I think that's right. At the end of the day, the U.S. based Wilton nationals are going to have to adjust. And then the U.S. comes in when it comes in and how it decides to come in. But we are still left with taxpayers having to make changes, maybe multiple changes to the structure just to kind of keep a status quo. 
I mean, the hardest part is that some of these taxes are coming in and they're not creditable. And so if and to the extent that we continue to rely on foreign tax credits and we're looking at the possibility of increasing, maybe significantly increasing foreign taxes that aren't creditable, particularly in certain industries versus others, we're just going to have this competitive imbalance that it's going to create within the U.S., across the U.S. industries that, that's going to have to be addressed one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're absolutely right. And as we think about Biden and that potential tax plan and taxes going up, the ability to credit, maybe I get more benefit there. But you're right, we've got to have creditable taxes at the end of the day. Otherwise, just the amount of cash out the door keeps going up for companies, but no credits otherwise potentially available. I do have a question about non-income taxes in the customs and tariffs area. This particular administration has been pretty forceful in using their executive power to impose punitive tariffs on imports. And if there was a serious move to protect U.S. manufacturers, that is another lever that an administration can pull. Would you foresee or could you foresee if Biden comes into the White House, a a Biden-driven White House doing the same? Boy, this is such a a big topic. And uh, like all I can say is that Trump has really upset, I think, the political apple cart as we think about trade, (laughs) because for so long it was really easy, right? You know, Republicans were all about free trade and Democrats were historically less interested in free trade, bordering on more protectionist. And Trump completely reversed what was Republican orthodoxy on trade to the extent that some people say, wait, are we sure he's really a Republican, at least as it comes to trade? And so the question is, where does that leave Biden now? So I think though, if you were going to say anything, is that Trump's view of international competition is more me against you, right? And we're it's not going to be a multilateral approach. It's going to be a bilateral deal. We're going to sit across the table and we're going to work out a deal. And there may be a winner and there may be a loser, but that's, sorry, that's the way deals go. Whereas I think it's safe to say that Biden and his career has shown this is more of a multilateralist and willing to work within the context of, you know, these multilateral agreements to try and say, it's not just about winners and losers. There should be an outcome here where we all win. We're not even talking about the gains that you have. We're talking about the value of the imported good, 25%. There's very little that you can do on the tax side that is quite that immediate and powerful and unilateral because it's just the White House can just do it. But I do think there is a really strong tool there, right, in the toolbox where you can target particular sectors. Both of them have talked about having to save jobs and, you know, that being a big focus of of their, you know, kind of plans going forward. You can be so specific and otherwise feed into certain jurisdictions and states and otherwise industries by using the trade tool rather than the tax tool, right? You can get more specific. So, John, this has been great. Great conversation. And I know this is probably just the tip of the iceberg. Things may evolve and crystallize further as we get towards and even beyond the elections. Where can we go for more information? Glad you asked. There is a separate podcast series that I do. Uh, It's called Catching Up on Capitol Hill. So we're focused on tax legislation and tax policy. We've got a whole series on the Biden tax plan. So you can find that also on KPMG Radio. If you're out on your morning walk. 
go ahead and catch it. In any case, thanks so much for joining us. Stay well. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to speaking to you next time.